0: Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, lead pastor at Hope, and we are so glad you're listening in wherever you are. In this moment of social distancing, we hope that our audio and streaming resources meet you where you are at and help you stay connected to God and to His promises. Now it is time to gather back to the live stream. And turn with me, uh, in your Bibles, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew is the first gospel book, and it's also the first book in the New Testament. And we're looking at chapter 5, starting in verse 13 this morning. Chapter 5, starting in verse 13 of Matthew. So we are continuing our series on epiphany. Epiphany, remember, means revealing. And so we have been exploring the two crucial revealings or epiphanies in the Christian life. The first is how Jesus reveals himself to the world. And then the second is how Jesus entrusts us, his church, with the task of revealing Jesus to the world throughout church history. This has been called missio day or the mission of God. And until mid February, as I mentioned, when epiphany officially ends, we will be exploring this mission of God. And notice I didn't say the mission of the church, Bible scholar Christopher Wright says it best, God doesn't have a mission for His church. He has a church for His mission. And this is shocking if you think about it. The Lord of hosts entrusts us with His mission. He doesn't gather the spiritual elite of the world, but sinners and people who know that they are sinners... He doesn't enlist the healthy, but he enlists the sick and those who admit that they are sick to to be the vehicle of his mission. And so what we're doing is we're looking at some key texts throughout the Bible uh, that demonstrate this to be true. Last week, we looked at the Gospel of John when Jesus says to his unfaithful and uncertain disciples, they were literally hiding in the dark. He says to them, as the Father sent me, so I am now sending you. It was in their place of uncertainty and unfaithfulness that Jesus commissions them as the vehicle through which his mission will be accomplished. It's unbelievable. Today, we're going to be looking at a well-known passage from Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. Just like Yahweh... On Mount Sinai, Jesus is speaking to his people from the mountain, telling us why and what we are redeemed for. What are we redeemed for? Uh, He is sending us on his mission. And to help us with this, he gives us two images. I'll read and you can follow along again, starting in verse 13 of chapter five in Matthew. This is God's word. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Lord, would you speak for your servants are listening. And Holy Spirit, we need your empowering presence this morning. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So a while back, I'm talking a while back, I had this idea to train for a triathlon. The only problem was at that time... I couldn't swim more than one lap without getting absolutely destroyed. (laughs) Um, It was the most humbling thing. And things moved from humbling to humiliating when other swimmers would join me in the pool. And they would literally run laps around me doing these graceful flip turns, um, kind of while I'm thrashing and gasping for air and standing at each corner or end of of the laps, catching my breath. But I didn't give up. And I did what I typically always do. I go to YouTube and I try to find instructions. So I learned very quickly on YouTube that swimming, uh, that that, that I was not swimming in the water. What I was doing is I was fighting the water. Um, A swimming coach on YouTube basically said that most swimmers do this. They swim against the water. And what they need to do is swim with the water. Turns out, There is a way to swim. I thought I could just jump in and start moving my arms and legs how I thought was best. But I learned that by submitting to the fundamentals of swimming, I was actually more free in the water. I was certainly more safe in the water. But I wanted to do it my way. And I think we all do this. And I think we can all resonate with that. It doesn't help that almost every single voice in our lives is encouraging us to do just that. Go your own way. Do it your own way. But when it comes to things like swimming, we can't just do our own thing. There are certain things in life that remind us that when we just do it our own way, it is actually harmful and dangerous. We must submit to what I call the pathways of freedom, the pathways of freedom. When I submitted to the fundamentals of swimming, I experienced a pathway of freedom. I experienced more joy. I experienced more freedom in the water. I could swim longer and I could swim with more grace and I didn't drown. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't drown. Uh, and so the Bible tells us something similar about God and about the world that he made. It says that there are God-given pathways of freedom, pathways to life, like swimming. Basically, they are specific, narrow even, pathways. But these pathways bring freedom and flourishing, freedom and growth. The narrative of scripture, the true story of the world, tells us how God created the world and placed humanity in it. Why did God do that? He, create, he He placed humanity in it to be wise and gracious stewards or gardeners of the world. And like good gardeners, we were supposed to cultivate from which we get the word culture. We were supposed to cultivate the world and we were supposed to bring beauty to the world and to unfurl life in the world and we were supposed to bring life out of the world uh, to God's glory and spread the garden and extend the garden across the whole world that God made. How are we to do this? Trust the pathways of God, the pathways of freedom in life. But we were rogue gardeners. Our parents went their own way and us with them, which ushered death and decay, thorns and thistles in this world and in our lives. But God, in his grace, decided to fight for what he made. And by the way, when God fights, he always wins. And one of the first things that he did in his fight was to recreate a pilot group of humans. A new way to be human in this world. And he called this people Israel. And they were called to live within the pathways that God gave them and then showcase it to the world and even invite people into the same pathway. And the goal here was to bring life like the good gardeners that we were supposed to be, to bring life to the world. In their freedom and in their flourishing, God's people, Israel, this pilot humanity was enabled to bless others and to attract others. And to, uh, to the God of that blessing. I, I just want you to listen to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. You can turn there if you want, but just listen to, uh, to how Deuteronomy 6 4 puts it. It says, Keep my statutes and do them. In other words, uh, stay on my pathways, God says. Why? For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples. Who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules, pathways of life, so righteous As all this law that I set before you today. See, God's people were to walk on God's pathways of life for the life of the world. For the life of the world. Not just their life and freedom, but for the sake of the world. But by the time Jesus comes to the world, Israel lost their way. I mean, the Old Testament is one repeated story after another of Israel very much not walking in God's pathways of life. So that by the time Jesus comes onto the scene in the words of one New Testament historian, Israel was behaving like everyone else with its power politics, its factional squabbles, its militant revolutions. And then on the other extreme There were these desert communities that were hiding away in the name of God. They weren't walking in the pathways of God. They were either blending in or bunkering down. Israel had lost their way. And doesn't this sound familiar right now in our cultural moment? We think the church kind of has one of two pills to take. The first pill is the, the pill of culture wars. And the second pill is the pill of cultural withdrawal. And we sort of think we either have to be a culture warrior or a cultural withdrawler. And, and uh, here's the thing. Neither blesses the world. Neither points others to God. And into this, Jesus says, you are salt and you are light. Which means he is calling us away from this false choice of culture war or culture withdrawal. He's calling us to something different. And so this morning, I want to ask three questions. First, I want to ask, what does it mean to be salt and light? Second, I want to ask, where is there need for salt and light? And then third, how can we remain salt Light. So first, what does it mean even to be salt and light? Well, three things. First, it means we benefit our surroundings. We bless our surroundings. Uh, there is uh, salt and light in the ancient culture. And even today is an immense benefit, an immense blessing. You can imagine in a culture without light bulbs and street lamps, light was a blessing and the same goes for salt. Ancient historians talk about the different benefits of salt throughout Jesus' day. It preserved food, it enhanced food, it purified things, it even brightened lamps. But there's one ancient benefit that doesn't get much attention. And it's probably the benefit that Jesus is talking about here, to be honest. Salt was, and it continues to be in parts of the world, a fertilizer. A fertilizer. This is often missed uh, because we don't live in an agrarian culture like Jesus. But Jesus did live in an agrarian culture. And so everybody knew in that setting that salt made things grow. It was a gardener's tool. And so when Jesus talks about salt of the earth, salt of the soil... It's likely the first thing they're thinking of is the field, not the table. It's agricultural use, not its culinary use. My former professor, Anthony Bradley, he pointed this out to me in class, and he's since gone on to publish an article on this, which is an amazing article and I want you all to read it, he cites soil experts from major universities, and there's all kinds of scientific reasons why ancients used salt in their soil to help things grow. Bradley, who's a theologian, but he used to be a professional chemist, says, and I'm quoting him, salt was used in arid places to help soil re- retain moisture, destroy weeds, make stubborn soils easier to till. And makes sour grass sweeter and more appealing to cattle. In some soils, salt keeps rust from wheat and blight from potatoes. And when applied properly, salt will kill surface weeds while allowing more deeply rooted plants and grass to thrive. And when rain or irrigation allows salt to permeate soil, the salt chemically frees vital minerals and nutrients in the soil, allowing them to nourish plants. And so all of Jesus' listeners, they knew that if salt lost its saltiness or its, its, um, if the gypsum deteriorated, I learned that in the article, uh, then it lost its ability to help the soil. Our translation um, sort of uh, blurs us a little bit by saying when salt loses its taste, when it loses its taste. So we immediately think The dinner table. But actually, the Greek literally says here, when salt is defiled, when it is defiled, or even made foolish. That's the word. So Jesus is saying, uh, farmers all know, farmers all know, you all know, that when soil loses its salt properties, I'm sorry, when salt loses its salt properties, it no longer benefits The soil, it becomes pointless if it loses what makes it salt. And so Bradley says, when Jesus calls us salt of the earth, he is literally saying you are salt for the soil. You are uniquely equipped to bring life to barren soil. To be salt and light is to bring life to the world, to benefit our surroundings. Salt and light also means, secondly, that we are to be distinct from our surroundings. I mean, this is so obvious, it's probably easy to miss. But in order to help the soil, salt needs to be different from the soil. If we just put more soil-like stuff in the soil, then nothing changes. And the same is true with light. Again, so obvious we can miss it. In order to make dark places light... We actually have to be distinctly different than the darkness. We have to be light. Jesus says, don't lose your salt properties. So you become just like soil. And Jesus says, don't cover your light. So you become just like darkness. You have to remain different and distinct. Christians, stay weird. (laughs) Stay weird. Okay. But it also means we need to interact with our surroundings. Okay. This is the third thing. If salt means we bless our surroundings, and if salt means we are distinct from our surroundings, it also means we are involved in our surroundings. Salt and light means we must be involved. The gospel makes us different, yes. But if that difference is not immersed into our surroundings, then there is no benefit. And we are not on mission. It can't bless. And that's why Jesus says, don't hide your light and don't be thrown out like like salt that's lost its properties. And don't be thrown out. In that case, if you look down to text, Jesus is saying you are literally good for nothing. You're good for nothing. That's not a a slam. It's just a fact on the ground. You're good for nothing. You're not being immersed And you're not going in, you're not involved in the very thing you're supposed to be doing. So for many years, my parents would bring a bag of fertilizer uh, for my yard when they would visit. And I wonder if they were telling me something. (laughs) Uh, But uh, too often I would apply it once, sometimes even forget, and I would gather this collection of fertilizer bags in my garage. And over time, these fertilizer bags just sort of sat there gathering dust. And that's what happens when we are distinct, but not involved. We are just gathering dust in the garage. Both are vital if we are to bring growth to the soil. To bring growth to the soil, to bring growth to the world, as redeemed gardeners that God would have us be, we need to be distinct and involved. R.T. France says, salt and light have their effect on its environment only, (laughs) I love this, only if it is both distinct from it and yet fully involved in it. So, he goes on, disciples must function in society, but as an alternate community. See, in order to bless, in order to benefit, we need to have uh, both a distinction and an involvement. Now, you all know I love a two by two grid. So you're probably wondering, uh, some of you are probably wondering when I'm going to talk about a two by two grid. But here is an example of how important it is to be a both and community. So I drew one. And I don't know if this is going to come across backwards because I'm using my phone here. And if it is, I apologize. Um, but here we are. Here is a two by two grid. And up this axis, we have being distinct. And across this, we have being involved. And too often, we, we live in these false, in the false choice. Of involvement without distinction or distinction without involvement. And so we have this false choice here, bunker down or blend in. If we're all involved, if we're all in, we're solely immersed into our surroundings, but we have no distinction, then we are simply blending in. And yet, on the other hand, if we anchor in on all of our distinctions as God's people and as followers of God's way, but we're not living in the community, we're not building relationships in the community, we're not involved in the PTO, we're not involved in our, 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 our place of work or our neighborhood associations and all of these things, then we are simply bunkering down, aren't we? And in both of these cases along this false axis here, we are not doing what we're called to do, which is bless. We are called to bless. We are called to be both distinct and involved. And when we live in this quadrant, we are actually doing what God has called us to do. So let me ask you some questions. In what areas are you tempted to just blend in? To, to remove and to sand off all distinctions of being a Jesus follower. Where are you tempted to sand off parts of the Christian message, parts of what it means to walk with Jesus, because it makes you painfully distinct in this cultural moment. Where could you be more distinct as a Jesus follower at work or at home with your neighbors, maybe your social media presence We all want to blend in, don't we? We all want to blend in. But for us to stay true to our calling, we must keep our Jesus shape and trust that all of his ways, all of them, are a blessing to the world. And let me ask you this. Where are you tempted perhaps to be in more of the bunker side of things? Up here. You're tempted to... To just bunker down with all of your distinctions. Maybe God is calling you to be more involved in your surroundings. Are you in retreat mode right now? Well, the world around you needs your presence. That's what Jesus is saying on the the Sermon on the Mount. He's saying from the mountain, the world needs you. That's why I've called you to myself. Andy Crouch says that Christians tend to do two things really well, unfortunately. Critique culture and copy culture. (laughs) We live here very well. We critique culture and we copy culture. But what Jesus is calling us to do is to create culture, to cultivate, to create life. To bring, the, to bring our distinction and and, uh, and the gospel to everything in the surroundings and as good gardeners to create and to cultivate life in the world. And so let me just ask you, how can you start to look at the way that you spend your day? Whether you're paid to spend your day doing this or whether you're unpaid to spend your day this this way. And how can you now begin to think of yourself as a gardener, a gospel gardener? You are commissioned to create life where things aren't growing. What does it mean to be salt and light? Let me ask you the second question. Where is there need for salt and light? Again, this is so obvious that sometimes we can miss it. Number one, the dark places need light. The dark places need light. Jesus says, don't cover the light. And when you do that, the darkness wins. And so, our job is to walk boldly into dark spaces as light bearers with the light of Jesus. And then, secondly, it's the barren places that need salt, it's the places of brokenness that we are called to immerse ourselves in. And then, thirdly, it's the uncelebrated places. It's the tough soil that needs salt. It's the places that no one else wants to go. Salt and light go to the places that are uncelebrated, usually, that are uncool, usually. Our culture right now, it has been for so long, is such a survival of the fittest culture. As much as we say we don't like that, it's just, it's just there. It's the air we breathe. And so we bring this mentality to everything. We want to go to the places that are winning. We want to go to the best places. We want to go to the places that are the best, the, the most um, noteworthy, or, or the places that can maybe help us climb the ladder of achievement. And this is, we're like magnets to these places. And we bring that attitude to the church. The survival of the fittest attitude um, tells us to give our energies to the things that are winning, to the things that are awesome. Uh, But Jesus here tells us to give our energies to the things that are losing. So look around. Right now. Where is it dark? Where is it barren? What are the everyday relationships or realities, social realities that need the salt and light of Jesus? I encourage you to think about that question beyond this service and this message. Which brings us to our third question. How do we stay salt and light? And the answer here is twofold. The identity of Jesus and then the identity that Jesus gives us. First, the identity of Jesus, the identity of Jesus alone will keep us salty and keep us bright. The the identity of Jesus alone will keep us salty and keep us bright. After all, he is the light of the world. He brought light to the dark by defeating death, defeating sin, defeating Satan at the cross. All of the prophecies of the Old Testament had talked about a light dawning on the world. The whole world is fulfilled and embodied in the light of the world, Jesus. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. And then Jesus' true salt, three days after he defeats all those things on the cross, Jesus is raised to life, bringing new life, resurrection to this barren world. Do you remember, Mary, Confuses Jesus as a gardener. When when she sees the risen Jesus. She says it's a gardener. She assumes it's a gardener. I love that detail. Jesus brings new life. Like fertilizer. To this dying and decaying world. With his resurrection. And so if we have any light to give it's because we are united to the true light of the world. And if we have any salt that brings life to the world, it's because we are united to the risen one, the salt of the earth. And this is why weak and broken people are summoned to reveal Jesus. Do you know the only requirement to be on the mission of God, to be a vehicle for the mission of God, is for you to know your weakness and need? Do you know that? Jesus says, I come for the sick, not the healthy. It's for those who know their need. And so how can that be? Well, in in, in God's sort of upside down genius, he realizes this is what it is. We own our weakness. And by the power of the Holy Spirit that is unleashed in that moment, we point to Jesus. And that is our superpower. Our weakness is our superpower. Our weakness. We get out of the way and the light and the salt of Jesus is manifested to his glory. And people who are broken and know they're broken and say, I can, get, I can get involved in that. I can jump on board to that. It's the identity of Jesus. And then it's the identity that Jesus gives us. It's the identity that Jesus gives us. We cannot, um, we have to give proper weight to this reality. He doesn't say here, try and act like light or try and act like salt Or you better try hard to be salt or you won't be. You better try hard to be light or you won't be. No, he says you are these things. These are who you are. This is your identity, your new identity in Christ. You don't have to pretend. There is no imposter syndrome when it comes to being salt and light. It's who you are at the core of who you are. It's your true identity, friends. The Christian life is basically becoming step by step, and misstep by misstep, who you really are in Jesus. Salt and light. The Sorting Hat. I think I've talked about this before, but the Sorting Hat in Harry Potter, I love it, because what it does is it gives an identity to each student at Hogwarts. And in the books, there's something formative about being named Slytherin. There's something formative about being named Gryffindor. The students really are shaped by their name. And then they live out that identity as the book goes on. There's power in the naming of Jesus. When he names you his own and he calls you light and he calls you salt, that is who you are. He has sorted you. Now live like it. Friends, the world needs you. The world needs you. They need your good works, as Jesus puts it in verse 16. They need your good works. Now listen, God doesn't need your good works. That's for sure. He saves you by grace. But he saves you and he blessed you to be a positive blessing. We don't bless others to be blessed by God. We are blessed by God so that we can bless others. We bless others because we have every spiritual blessing in Jesus. And when we get this right, our righteousness is beautiful. It's not the self-righteousness that Jesus condemns in chapter 6. If you just look over, it says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. He says this in verse 1 of chapter 6. Beware of that. Beware of practicing your righteousness in order to be seen by them. And that's what we do when we think that we have to earn our Standing and earn our blessing with God. But when we are blessed as needy sinners, when we are healed as those who acknowledge our sicknesses, and then when we get that, it flows through us. There is a humility in our actions towards the world that is beautiful. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. Don't let anyone tell you differently. Righteousness and humility is a beautiful thing. And the world needs it. The world needs it. The world needs it. You need to get in the world. Bring that distinction to the world. Bring that gospel humility to the world and point others to it as well. It brings glory to God, Jesus says. It's, it doesn't bring glory to us. That's how you know when our salt and light is off track or if it's on track. If our salt and light brings glory to us or brings glory to our cause, we know it's off. But when our salt and light brings glory to God, it is right on. And it is a gift from God. It's a hope church let's be salt and light together all of us notice this image of light that jesus uses is collective it's not individual now granted there are individuals that create the collective the image jesus gives us is a city it's a city i love this because it strikes the balance we need today The pendulum has swung back and forth across history to Christianity being one of a collectivist identity to Christianity being one of a totally individual identity. But what Jesus says is that we are a city, which is a collection of individuals. Can somebody say two by two grid? Yes, that's where we're at. So what we need to do to be a light is we need to act like individual lights together as a church, as a community, as a city. That's what we're called to be. We're called to be salt as a community, together as a church. And so hope in the coming months, as we unpack our our vision for what we want, uh, much of it has to do with these two words and these two identities, salt and light. Let's pray. Lord, would you indeed Encourage us with this word that you speak from the mountain. Your firsthand word from God, word of God. And would it shape us more and more to be distinct from the surroundings, but also involved and therefore a benefit, a blessing. And it's in Jesus name we pray this. Amen. Amen. Thanks for tuning in. For more information about our church and for more resources like this, visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.